Talks, a chat with Finance Malta, is the podcast series that gives you short, thoughtful and regular insights from leading experts of the financial services industry. I'm Vanessa McDonald. Welcome. David, let's agree that this is pretty much the era of big data. And yet, when you look at some of the main complaints being brought up by people like the European Banking um, Authority and the European Banking Federation and so on, the main thing holding back all of these things reaching their full potential is the lack of data. Mm. How is this working? Why is this happening? Well, I mean, so... The EU has actually been a, a global leader in making data more transparent, more accessible, more portable, uh, while putting more control into the hands of, of the individual, right? This was um, uh, the promise of GDPR on the one hand, uh, and the Payment Services Directive 2, the PSD2, uh, on the other. Um, and, and the basic idea, if I, I can simplify it and, and kind of focus it on the financial services industry, was this notion that um, you know, you own your data, not your bank. Your bank doesn't own your data. So one of the sort of challenges in the banking world historically that encouraged uh, uh, legacy incumbents to maintain you know, oligopoly power was uh, um, uh, the fact that you had all your banking data. It was trapped in the system, one particular institution. And if you wanted to open a new bank account somewhere else, you couldn't move that over. Um, and it made it very inconvenient for consumers. So open banking comes along and says, all right, um, we're going to make it, we're going to put power back into the hands of the individual, and we're going to put power back into the hands of, of, of a consumer to be able to make more choices and increase competition, increase innovation in, in the banking sector. So, you know, if, if I can pause for a second and, and kind of articulate a framework around what makes for good policy, which then hopefully gets implemented into good things for all of us. Um, you know, regulators have to balance a number of competing objectives. Um, one of them is to maintain stability, and manage risk, right? So, so they want to make sure that you don't have a, a, a wildly variable banking system, that people feel comfortable putting their money in a bank. Um, uh, one of them is consumer protection. So, you know, you got to get hold of banking fees, which at one point historically were exploding and people were getting hit with all these charges and things. And so policy and regulation came into place to protect the individual where they lack the market power to negotiate with the bank to get better rates. Um, and one of them is to promote innovation. And, and people forget about this one because, uh, you know, they get so focused on compliance and on how regulation burdens them with uh, if they're uh, in, a, in a corporate or, or institutional role, they're saying, oh, I have all these rules I have to comply with. Um, but one of the, the roles of regulators is actually to help promote innovation. Um, and, and so if you, if you remember that last one, and then you think about this idea of PSD2, and I want to, you know, I, I, the consumer, want to move from one account at one bank to, a, to an account in another bank, um, you know, the, the, the notion or the, the vision of this was hey, we're going to make it easier for fintechs, for neobanks, for up-and-comers to, um, uh, uh, to compete with the big banks by making it easier for people to port their accounts over, make their personal data portable. Personal data is the fuel for all these AI models that everyone's talking about, right? The way that the AI can look at a population of people and then if a new person shows up and says, hi, I would like a loan or I'd like a credit card, the AI can look at everyone's behaviors and say, all right, this person 
who has just shown up is this kind of credit risk, so we can offer them this balance uh, limit and we can offer them this, this interest rate. Um, so, so it is incredibly important that you have this personal data and by unlocking it with PSD2, we now have the ability to, to move uh, individual personal data around and that, that kind of helps to, to solve some of the, the data problems. Um, the bigger backdrop, of course, is GDPR, which is saying, you know, you have the right to be forgotten, you have the right to control what happens with your personal data, and it was great in theory, um, it has struggled in practice. Um, and, and, you know, I would submit that it, it may be worth revisiting and taking the lessons of the first go at GDPR and, and having another go at it. Um, because now we know a little more about how to manage data and, and how, how things play out in practice. Um, so, so, uh, so there are, you know, what I would call policy and regulatory frameworks that should support um, access to data if you offer consumers something valuable. Um, and people will volunteer their data, we've proven this in the field time and again, if they get something back for it. So Waze, you know, the, the uh, mapping software, uh, and Google Maps more broadly, they get some of your most valuable and intimate data, which is where you are right now. And the reason they get it is because they're giving you something back in return, a faster commute, an easier path to get to where you want to go. So there's a, an exchange, a barter. Um, too many of the uses of data, particularly in the financial services sector, don't offer consumers enough of a value proposition for them to want to hand over more of their data, which in turn could help the banks offer uh, better solutions. Um, you know, I'll offer in contrast, so I did a little bit of work with a bank in uh, Eastern Europe uh, uh, called TBI Bank. Uh, so TBI Bank uh, um, is in uh, Bulgaria, Romania, and Greece. Um, and they are a fairly sophisticated data-driven operation. So they have some really smart data scientists working there um, and they're able to offer what is in their view better products and services more competitively to the right consumers because of this sort of mastery of data and the offering of sort of this exchange of, you know, um, uh, you let us know you better and you'll get something back from us. Um, so, so when I hear bankers complaining that they don't have enough data, um, you know, I think that, that they are resisting the, the implications of GDPR, which puts more power into the hands of consumers. And I, su I suspect that they're not giving enough to consumers in order to earn that data, whereas they used to be able to just get it. You've been involved in um, AI and mm. so on for, if I'm allowed to say, decades. <laughs> uh, since 1991. That's why exactly. I wrote my first AI software in 1991, and uh, I'm not ashamed to say Not it. ashamed to say. Yeah. Um, however, it, it is so interesting that even after all of this time, yeah. you're saying that people are willing to give their data, and yet there seems to be quite a backlash because people are also afraid of the way that that data has been misused by corporates uh, buying their data, sharing it without their permission, in spite of GDPR. Um, sometimes illegally, I mean. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're I find also talking about hacks, I, I, for heaven's sake. Yeah, I mean, and, and Facebook, or Meta just had another hack where over 500 million phone numbers were stolen out of WhatsApp. 
um, so, so, so Australia we, we, had their telecommunications company. Yeah. You know, they're having to buy passports. So, so we're going to have people's I saw that, yeah. <laughs> I have some Australian friends that were caught up in that. Um, so, so let's come back to this question of cybersecurity and data in, in, in just a minute. But, but you know, with, with respect to the, the you know, people uh, being up in arms or the backlash, what, what I find vexing is um, something that, that kind of comes back to a turning issue at the heart of all these questions you're asking, which is we need more data literacy. You know, when people go to school, they learn how to read and they learn how to do maths and, and we don't teach them enough about data and what, what data they generate and how it's used and what they can do with it and what they can demand is done with it. And, and as a result, um, you end up with, it, it's not it's not just sort of abuse, but it, it's sort of this um, irrational reactions in both directions. So on the one hand, you have a backlash against even things that are good for people. And on the other hand, uh, like for example, um, pooling public health data to help manage epidemics better. And, and on the other hand, you have TikTok, which is one of the worst abusers of data to emerge in the last 30 years. So I encourage you, I don't have a TikTok, I had one briefly for a microsecond uh, about four or five years ago, but then I, they, they updated their terms of service. The little end user license agreement you sign when you load an app and it says click here to accept. Everyone blindly just sort of scrolls past and clicks accept. TikTok has among the worst terms of service of anyone out there. Worse even, and it's hard for me to say this, I can't imagine I'm saying this, worse even than Meta, uh, worse even than WhatsApp. And, and with TikTok, you're, you're acknowledging that your data is being handed over to the, the security services of the, of the Chinese government. I mean, I say that uh, um, loosely, right? It doesn't literally say, we're going to give your information to the spies, but, um, uh, but read it and, and you'll see that there's a lot of permissiveness around it and your data is going back to China and, and I would be shocked if it is not being then loaded into government servers. Um, and so... Uh, people are blindly giving some very, very powerful, intimate personal data over to a state actor um, uh, while protesting other uses of data. Um, and this speaks to the problem of a lack of data literacy. People need to understand data better. They need to understand how it's used. They need to understand what their rights are and, and what can be done with their data. Um, maybe we should move on to the idea of artificial intelligence. because mm, Sure. The fact that, you know, uh, you, you have data which can teach itself how to get better data and better algorithms yeah, and so yeah, on yeah. Is, is the stuff or was the stuff of, of science fiction. Is it working? Is it not working? What more do we need to do? It is which working? Is AI working or, or is our use of AI working? What, what's the, can you elaborate on the question? I think the fact that you're even asking that shows how little we know about it. Yeah, I mean, so... so and, and I, I mean, a... there were days when, you know, we used to look at blockchain and think that the whole world would be um, transferred onto blockchain. And yet there are very few little, you know, well, I mean, it hasn't I've... changed the world the way yeah. a lot of other things no, have, I mean, look, like I, the Internet has, for example. So timescales are important to look at and technology maturity curves, right? People have been messing around with AI uh, since, well, technically since the 1940s when we wrote the first AI software to, to crack the Enigma code during World War II. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, it, it, I remember when I was playing around with AI first in the early 90s, it wasn't terribly useful. 
I mean, it could be used for some things, but it was hard to use, and not a lot of applications really were, were profoundly uh, impactful. So what happened is AI got better. So first we had expert systems, and those were AIs that if you had a bunch of rules, and so it said if this thing happens here, then over then, here we'll mm-hmm. respond in this way. And in the first chatbots were, and in fact, chatbots today even primarily are AI-driven, but, but expert system driven. Um, and, and then in the 80s, we developed something called machine learning. And this led to the ability where with machine learning, you don't have a rule book. What happens is the AI gets better the more data you give it. And, and that was true for a number of interesting applications like facial recognition and the first efforts at, at speech recognition about being able to take someone's voice and turn it into data. Um, but then it started running into a limit. You know, so the AI would get better the more data you pour into it up to a point and then it plateaued and it couldn't get better and this was like a wall that was holding back the use of AI for anything that we'd find interesting Um, and then there was a breakthrough uh, with the commercialization of deep learning and what deep learning is is it's the kind of AI where you have layers upon layers of computation that are all sort of networked together structured kind of like the way the human brain is in this three-dimensional matrix of, of neurons and with deep learning the more data you put in, the better it gets. It doesn't have that plateau that uh, other kinds of machine learning have. Um, and there are new other variations. There's some really interesting things called generative adversarial networks. That's a hot topic last year, GANs. But, um, but, but you know, just to, to focus uh, for a minute on, on deep learning, um, this is what mean, has led to the fact that you can talk to your phone and it'll do something intelligent. Um, we didn't have that until maybe, and anyone could show up and just start talking to their phone and it would do something intelligent. We didn't have that until a few years ago. And, and so uh, look at the time scale. We invented AI, functional AI in the 1940s. We invented machine learning in the 1980s, but we only got useful AI in the mid 20 teens, right? So in 2016, Google open sourced their deep learning library. Uh, which is called TensorFlow, and suddenly everyone could build stuff in these deep learning systems. And you may have noticed within the last, eh, you know, seven years or so, uh, uh, six, seven years, we've suddenly got a lot of AI-driven businesses and technologies that are changing our lives. So, you know, I point to that time scale because, you know, everyone's probably talked to a voice assistant like a Siri or an Alexa or one of these other things. Um, and then I point to blockchain I say, well, all the, the precedent technologies have been around for 30 years, but, but the blockchain as a deployed technology at scale has really only been around since 2008. So we have like another decade at least, if not a couple of decades, before we really see it doing the kinds of things that everyone's talking about with, with its promise. But, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I also don't think the blockchain is everything. I think it's good for certain things, particularly in the financial system, because it's a record-keeping system. It's like a ledger book. What's a bank? A bank is a ledger book. Blockchain is a better ledger book. And so there are things that we desperately need to fix in the global financial system, like cross-border payments, um, which blockchain is really well-suited for. And, and I've placed a number of investments. They're all kind of disclosed on my website. But uh, I've placed a number of investments in this area, but one of them, for example, is Abbey Cross. Um, and Abbey Cross is uh, uh, started by the former head of foreign exchange for Bank of America, which is a top three uh, uh, foreign exchange you know, uh, bank in the world. Um, and he was looking at how we move money 
in currency pairs and saying, you know, the system, the current system's broken. We need to come up with something better. And, and he has some interesting ideas in that, in that area. A really bright guy, Mike Robertson. Um, so, so blockchain is not good for everything, but it is good for certain things. But I'm not yet disappointed with the lack of progress in blockchain because it's still early. Um, and we have found some interesting use cases for it. And I, I think, you know, others will emerge. One of the things that you did work on was uh, for the Commonwealth. You were looking at all sorts of um, uses of virtual financial assets, etc., 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 and specifically about Malta, uh, which you did remotely, but still. Uh, at the time, and this is now a couple of years ago, the conclusion was, was very positive. Malta was doing extremely well. In fact, it was chosen as one of the five or six case studies. What's the situation now? Yeah, so um, the Commonwealth FinTech Toolkit was, was, I think, a very progressive move by the Commonwealth Secretariat. Um, you know, the Commonwealth itself is this really interesting concept, right? There are 2.4 billion people uh, um, around the world who, who share language, share certain um, legal traditions and, and other cultural traditions. Uh, um, and, and, and so, you know, this loose confederation, what can be done with this? Um, and I have all sorts of dreams for what the Commonwealth could have been or could be. Uh, but, but within that, um, there was this idea, and this is, I think, an example of some of the, some of the best of what it can be. Um, the, the central bank governors came together and they said, you know, uh, this stuff, this fintech thing, this blockchain thing, we're, we're seeing these new technologies emerge and, and people don't know enough about them. And so they turned to the, the, uh, the secretariat of the Commonwealth uh, and, and said, um, hey, you know, would you put together some, uh, uh, some materials to help us better understand best practice Better, better understand what these technologies are and then better understand best practice of how to apply them. Um, and so that was the birth of the, the Commonwealth FinTech Toolkit project. You know, it kind of emerged in part out of some work I had done previously where I created the, the FinTech and blockchain classes for Oxford uh, uh, as well as prior to that for MIT. And so I had all these students running around all over the world who were doing interesting things. Um, and and uh, it was all online, right? It was virtual. And, and, um, uh, and so... Taking inspiration from that, the ComSec, a Commonwealth Secretariat, said, hey, we want to create some very um, fundamental educational materials so that someone working at a central bank or working in a financial sector at a given Commonwealth member nation could understand, you know, what is AI, what is big data, what is blockchain, and then how do we use it and illustrate that with some case studies because when I say how do we use it, it can't just be like let's deploy the technology. If you deploy the technology with a regulatory and policy framework, you end up running into problems. Um, and this is why the U.S. is not the world's fintech leader despite having all these fintechs and despite having uh, all this venture capital because the, the policy and regulatory framework is so inhibitory to progress that other nations, whether it's uh, the UK or it's Bermuda or it's Singapore or it's Switzerland or India, certain states in India, other nations have been able to assume more leadership around fintech because of, of a, a more coherent and organized policy and regulatory framework. And so against that backdrop, you know, Malta um, had stepped forward and come up with what we viewed at the time was a fairly enlightened approach to, to the first step to creating an enabling environment for, for fintech and blockchain innovation, um, which is to create some coherency around uh, regulation and policy. So 
that's why we highlighted it in the report. Um, unfortunately, since then, you know, we, there are a few things that have gone on. One of them is COVID, which sort of accelerated some parts of the financial services sector and slowed down others. Um, we've had a lot of volatility in the cryptocurrency markets. So, you know, it, people like to say to me, oh, wow, you know, crypto was at $65,000 or whatever it was for Bitcoin, you know, and now it's only 17,000. This is terrible. And, and my response to that is, yes, but two and a half years ago, it was at 8,000. So show me an asset class that has increased by over 100% in two years. I, you know, I should have put, well, I don't speculate or make investment recommendations, but I note with interest that, um, you know, the, that it, you have to bear in mind where it's come from. Um, and, and so, but there has been a lot of volatility. So to, go, to go from eight to 65 to 17, it actually dipped low. It was down, I think, almost in the 15s. Uh, this is just Bitcoin, one of 21,000 cryptocurrency tokens. Um, you know, I, I, I sit there and I go, all right, well, it's probably not something that you want to pay people's salary with where they're feeding their families because of that volatility. Um, but it has also made people nervous. And so that might inhibit progress in this area because, they say, oh, wow, it's moving around so much. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Um, but, but that should not slow us down, right? Innovation is always messy. You know, it, by definition, you're disrupting something existing and, and that is never a clean process. Um, and so what, what I see missing in Malta is um, the, the concomitant private sector action that maps into what's going on with the, the policy framework. And, and, you know, the gray list certainly did not help. You know, why am I going to set up operations in a country that is, is on this watch list is what the typical entrepreneur might say. Getting off the gray list now opens up opportunity for Malta. Now is the time when uh, there's a chance to step forward and take advantage of a number of Malta's intrinsic uh, assets. One of them is that it's small. Small is actually good in the new era of AI and big data. Why is small good? Because you can get a handful of people in a room and make a decision about policy, about economic allocation, about enabling environments. The U.S. has 350 million people. It's got 50 states. It's got a variety of federal agencies. And what that means is there are over 100 government officials and senior levels who think that they get to decide what happens with fintech and blockchain, which is why nothing has happened, because you have... The, the state attorneys general, you have the banking uh, regulator, you have the uh, insurance regulator sometimes weighing in, uh, in each of 50 states. Then you have the, the uh, SEC, the CFTC, these are different regulatory, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Commodities Future Trading uh, Commission. You have a variety of, of, of government officials who all are sort of sticking their oar in and saying, you know, I am in charge of this. Whereas in Malta, you can get a small number of people together and make some coherent decisions. Um, and and the, the best example I've seen of this in a small island nation, well, there are two. One of them, uh, no, most notably, though, was Bermuda, where, you know, not unlike Malta, it was a, uh, a financial center in the Commonwealth, a small island nation, and um, looking to diversify from its uh, historical or legacy financial services, in the case of, of Bermuda, you know, insurance, and the premier of Bermuda, David Burt, came to a series of events at the World Economic Forum at Davos a few years ago, including 
uh, a lunch that I ran with MIT professor Sandy Alex Pentland. And um, there he met a bunch of interesting, he got inspired about digital assets. He met a bunch of interesting people at that lunch and he flew them back to Bermuda, or they flew with him back to Bermuda. And they spent several months putting together a policy framework around digital assets. And by implementing that, you know, the DACA uh, uh, and other related actions and government interventions, um, Bermuda was able to create a new sector for its economy around uh, fintech and blockchain. And uh, kind of the, the crowning moment there was when Circle, one of the largest sort of blockchain crypto companies in the industry, announced that they were moving their international headquarters from Singapore to Bermuda. Um, and why? Because it was a friendlier environment for doing business. It was easy to incorporate. It was easy to set up a bank account. It was easy to uh, uh, um, conduct business. And the government said, here are the rules around cryptocurrency. Here is what is inbounds, and here is what is out of bounds. And by providing that regulatory transparency and clarity, entrepreneurs were able to say, okay, now I know how to operate versus taking on uncertain sovereign risk around, around regulation. Um, and so it, it's a, it, you have to be competitive. Entrepreneurs today domicile shop. They look for which domicile to go to. I just watched it happen where uh, a company that I had placed an investment in, uh, Copper Technologies, uh, headquartered in London, was one of the UK's fintech unicorns, um, set up their, their primary operations in Switzerland because the Swiss were able to provide licensing and clarity in a way that uh, you know, and this has all been discussed, discussed in the press. I'm not sharing anything out of, out of turn. Um, uh, but, but, you know, the, the FCA was not able to give copper technologies uh, the kind of license it needed to, to operate. Um, and and so, uh, so this is an opportunity for Malta because it's small, so it can make decisions quickly because you can get a small number of people into a room to do something. Um, second of all, why a small okay today? Well, because... You know, in today's era, machines do a lot of things. You can have a big company with a small number of people running it. Uh, and so, you know, attracting entrepreneurs and building entrepreneurial nexus in Malta it is now a matter of becoming attractive to a small number of people, not that you need a million engineers based here. No, you can have, you know, you can have a dozen people here in Malta and you can have your, your engineering pool in Kazakhstan, for example. Uh, which has attracted a lot of, of uh, uh, Russian talent, given what's going on in, in, with the war. Uh, a lot of Russian brain drain is occurring, and they're going to places like Kazakhstan and Georgia and Cyprus and a few other uh, places. So, so, um, so there's some interesting opportunities right now at this moment in time where you have a, a country that both is a member of the EU and has uh, financial passporting, meaning if I can set up business here, I'm accepted across many different countries in the financial industry, um, and a member of the Commonwealth, which means I have some links, however loose, to many other countries around the world uh, that, that create a potential platform for, for cross-border trade and activity. Um, and, and so, you know, Malta has some intrinsic assets, and it could leverage those assets into creating um, new opportunity. And I'm going to speak about that at my speech today, uh, but one example is ESG. Europe, more than anywhere else in the world, is a haven, a nexus, a, a, a center of activity for ESG investment. 
It's been a pioneer. It's been a leader. It's more accepted at a behavioral level, not just a policy level within organizations. And by that, I mean, it's not just saying, hey, we're greenwashing ourselves. We're going to claim that everything's good and we're, we're a socially responsible company, but then no business practices change in Europe. Uh, uh, business practices actually are being aligned along uh, environmental, social, and governance lines to, to sort of uh, uh, present a, a model for the world. So um, that said, no one country has yet to emerge as the center for ESG activity uh, in the EU. Uh, there are many contenders, but no one country has yet to emerge. Um, and so Malta has an opportunity because ESG gets interesting when you motivate people the access of money. And Malta has a long history in the financial services industry and the potential to create kind of an ESG uh, uh, focal point or center of excellence. Um, and there's certainly a lot, and we heard this in George's speech today, there's certainly a lot of EU money to promote entrepreneurial action, to support private equity venture capital and entrepreneurs, particularly in application areas of AI and blockchain, which are fundamental to this idea of how do we, how do we drive ESG at scale. Um, so that is one potential future for Malta, which I think is really interesting, is, is to create the, the, the ESG center of excellence for Europe. Because it's one of these things that can be done with AI and big data, so you need a few smart people instead of, you know, millions of, of, you know, sort of laborers like in manufacturing. That's all for today. Subscribe now to the FinTalks and follow Finance Malta on all social media platforms to stay updated with all our activities. Till the next podcast.